Hello, guys. Good to see you this morning, if even in this way. Um, I was reflecting as I came in here that this feels like deja vu or, um, or PTSD. You can have your pick. But, um, but man, uh, at minimum, I'm so thankful, like Mike just prayed, that, um, that we still have a God who is sovereign, who is good in his providence, and he is very gracious and merciful to us as we gather this morning. Um, but with that said, uh, we're in chapter 2 this morning in Ecclesiastes, and uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is exploring a question. The question is, what happens when a person tries really hard even to find satisfaction, that sort of deep soul satisfaction, in some place other than where it's actually found? What happens to somebody who tries to find deep soul satisfaction in some other place than where it's actually found, what's going to happen? I need to answer that um, question. I want to give you an image. I want you to this morning just to imagine in this moment that you are a fish, okay? You're a fish. Uh, let's say you're a big fish, okay? Uh, you're, you're like a king salmon or something, and you live in the Pacific Ocean, and you're living about your days, you're swimming about your days, and all of a sudden it hits you one day, you just think to yourself, you know what, not me, not me, all right? Uh, I, I want to try the beach life. I want to try the beach life. I'm tired of this cold ocean. I want to get some sun. I want to get some fresh air, right? Let's just imagine that's your thought process. My question to you is, will you find your soul's joy being satisfied in a decision like that? Clearly, the answer is no, right? You were meant to live, and I'd argue even exult, right, in the ocean, right? You were meant for that. So not only will you not find that satisfaction there, you're going to be frustrated in your search, and ultimately, uh, you will wind up dead. I think if we are honest and if we're clear-headed this morning, we would admit that inside the secret of our heart and really heart of every single human being, there is this quiet desperation that we all walk around with. We all have this quiet desperation, this silent hunt, if you will, we, we are all looking for something that we can actually find and hold on to that is going to make us go, like, that's it. That th- this is it. This is what I've been looking for, and I've finally found it. Like, we're all in that silent, quiet, desperation hunt. But not only do we want to find what that thing is that'll make us kind of give that big exhale of air, Uh, but we want to be able to maintain it forever. And and isn't it horrible when you're actually looking for something like that and you finally get it, and then when you finally get it, you realize, oh no, this wasn't it. This wasn't it. Uh, Maybe you grew up searching for someone to spend the rest of your life with and long love in marriage, and, and you finally got the ring, you had the ceremony, you had the honeymoon, right? You had everything, and then you woke up one day somewhere down the line, and you went, oh, no, this wasn't it. Or you finally got into the friend group at school that you were just longing to be in. You thought that would be it. Or you you were longing to have a child, and it didn't seem possible, and then you finally had a child. Or you bought the house, right? You finally got the house. Or, or, Or you paid it forward, even, 
Maybe you, you traveled finally to the place you thought you needed to travel, or you, or you lived the party scene for a long enough time, or you got the raise, or, or maybe even you opened up, right? This is the big promise in our day and age. You opened up about who you truly are, and people actually embraced you when they found out about who you truly are, and you thought that would solve it, but then you woke up the next day, and you're like, that's still not it. Or, or maybe uh, you're a Seahawks fan, and you thought, man, if we could just win the Super Bowl, right? And you actually did. And I wasn't here when you did. So um, I just want to congratulate you. You know, I heard it was back in 2013 or something. But, um, but you win the Super Bowl, right? But then what's the problem? You want to win it again, right? Uh, speaking of Super Bowls, quite famously, Tom Brady was interviewed back in 2005 on the show 60 Minutes. And he was interviewed after he won his third Super Bowl. Right, and somehow he's still playing for these Super Bowls. But this should be on the screen for you. He said this in that interview, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, quote, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And the interviewer asked him, what's the answer? Tom Brady could only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. People have famously said similar things throughout the years, like John Rockefeller, you know, who was like the wealthiest po- uh, person in America at one point. At one point, he had a net worth of 1% of the entire U.S. economy, which 1% sounds like a small number, but is actually a really big number. And uh, someone asked him how much money was enough, and he responded by saying just a little bit more. Or you could think of Marie Antoinette, the famous French queen, who literally had everything, and at one point in her life finally commented, nothing tastes anymore. Nothing tastes anymore. See, this silent desperation, it's actually not a new problem. Uh, The hunt for that that, ah, this is it, sort of satisfaction is not new either. And we know so because we're holding a similar testimony in our hands this morning in in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We see Solomon do a few different tests, different experiments to see if true satisfaction, if true meaning can be found in this life under the sun. We, we can almost envision him getting out a, a deck of playing cards and trying to build a house of cards. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that before. I've miserably failed. But he's trying to build this house of cards, one uh, card on top of the next, and hoping not to just not bump the table, because if you do, we all know what happens. Right? The whole thing comes crashing down. But there is a method to Solomon's madness or wisdom, depending on how you want to look at it. And we see here that his first experiment is this have-it-all experiment. We see that in verses 1 through 11, right? And then the second experiment is in verses 12 through 23. I'm just going to call it the living wisely experiment. And we know these are the two experiments because of these markers in our text. In verse 1, he says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. And then down when you get to verse 12, he says, so I turned then to consider wisdom. So these are our two big markers. And then finally, we get to his conclusion in verses 24 through 26. And his conclusion is going to show us, uh, begin to show us the answer to the satisfaction question. Is there any gain under the sun? If you remember, that was the first question he raised at the beginning of the book in verse 3 of chapter 1. So here we have it, the have it all experiment in verses 1 through 11. 
the living wisely experiment, 12 through 23, and the two ways to live conclusion in verses 24 through 26. So let's look at that have it all experiment, verses 1 through 11. Read with me, it says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. All right, so, so this initial experiment is really all about having fun, right? It's all about pleasure, about cheering the body. And he takes the first card out of the deck, if you will, and he places it on the table, and it's, it's the card of laughter, right? It's in laughter. We know this. It's a really wonderful gift, isn't it? Um, actually, I'm really bad at laughing. Um, it takes a lot to get me to laugh. So a smile for me is normally the equivalent of a laugh. But I was thinking about this is actually this last week. Like, man, I haven't had a laugh in a long time. And uh, God was good because uh, my kids, I came home and my kids, my, my two of my kids, Eden and Gus, they're nine and six, um, they, they do this weird improv bit where they pretend to be old people. And they just out of nowhere start pretending to be old people and they just kind of talk to you like they're really old and it just gets me roaring. And I was just dying this week laughing, uh, seeing them improv their old person bit. And uh, it was great. I was like, oh man, I needed that. It was so joyful, right? And then what happens, right? Laughter goes away, right? It's great, but it doesn't last. And this is exactly why he says, look at that question there, what use is it? Listen to that question. It's an important question. What use is it? Like he's saying, what at the end of the day, what do I get out of it? He's not saying it's bad. He's not saying that it wouldn't give you pleasure for a moment, but what use is it at the end of it all, after it's all said and done, as the laughter fades away, what use is it? Is there something that, long, that lasts? Then he turns to wine. I searched my heart, how to cheer my body with wine. He says, my heart's still guiding me. All right, so uh, he can pick up a glass of wine, maybe a, maybe a couple, but he knows when to put it down, right? This is not... Uh, a pleasure test where he's just getting wasted or something. This isn't like debauchery or whatever you and I would call that's, that's sinful or something, right? He, he has wisdom even in his drinking, and he knows that this is a good gift from God. But according to this preacher, even an impro- appropriate enjoyment of wine, while maintaining wisdom, it can cheer your body, but it won't bring the gain you long for, right? So what use is it, really? And so we pull another card from the deck. Right, verse 4 and following, it's all about what he did. Read with me. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves I, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So we see in verses four through six, Solomon building things. It takes him seven years to build the temple and 13 years to build his own palace. You can read about these events in 1 Kings chapter 6. And seven, but there's actually another passage that's being paralleled here, and it's an important one to realize. Listen again to the imagery. What does he say? 
I planted vineyards, gardens, parks, planted them all with kinds of different kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I mean, what other passage in Scripture might that remind you of? Well, Genesis 1 and 2, right? I mean, in his quest for pleasure, he, he's seeking to recreate Eden, right? His own new creation. He even has the wealth and the ability to kind of do it. Only this Eden that he's building has no forbidden fruit, and he amasses for himself people, possessions, and everything he needs to party and have a good time. And so we then see the next three cards that he pulls out of the deck, verses 7 through 8. He, he's, he has the building, he has the grounds, and what does he need now? He needs the staff, right? He needs the stores, he needs the treasure, he needs the entertainment. And so he buys other humans made in the image of God to recreate his personal Eden. And then he adds that with wealth, right? This stuff keeps accumulating. And we're told in 1 Kings 10 that Solomon had so much gold. It says, quote, silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Now, I know you probably don't have a lot of gold bricks laying around your house, but we know that's a lot of money, right? So too much to fathom, really. And to his wealth, we then see add music and sexual pleasure, right? He has concubines, right? He's exploiting others for his own pleasure, following what's standard in the world. And let's be honest, this is still the fantasy of many people today, right? You might not have concubines, but you have websites, right? You might not buy people, but secretly, we would love the idea of having people do all the work that we don't want to have to do, right? And so here's the thing we notice from verses 1 through 11. It's, it's really striking. What do, what do you notice? I made, I built, I made, I planted, I made, I bought, I had, I gathered, I got. Right, you hear that? Right, Eleven verbs of action, all preceded by the word I. I did it. He made it happen. He was a, a man of accomplishments, right? One card gently placed on top of the others, right? One on top of the other, just all for me, right? Looking for pleasure and lasting gain. Is this it? Is the beach life it, right? Then in 9 through 10, he tries to put it all together. What does it say? I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. He has it all. He's arrived, right? And in the process, we're told he denied himself nothing that might possibly give him pleasure or joy. So this was a successful experiment. This wasn't like you and me that you're like, well, I wasn't able to get that. Maybe that was it. No, he had it all. Like it was a successful experiment. And I'm just curious this morning, I mean, just if you were to be honest, you don't have to answer out loud. You probably wouldn't. But um, do you envy this guy? I mean, if all things were equal, I mean, wouldn't you want a bigger house with a nicer view? Right? If there were tasks that you didn't want to do, and you could just pay other people to always do it for you, I mean, wouldn't that be great? This experiment, though, isn't limited to the wealthy. We try to do this all the time with the things that you, we have. Like, we're on this silent, desperate quest daily. 
we're in many ways, uh, to go back to Tom Brady, we're not like Tom Brady. I'm not like Tom Brady in very ma- a lot of ways, okay? But we're also very much like Tom Brady. Because even when you're sitting on top of the world, you have this sneaking suspicion that this can't be all that it's cracked up to be, that, that it's really all a house of cards just ready to crash at any moment. See, I don't think there's much modern about the modern world, right? We realize that when we read Ecclesiastes. We think it's new, but it's really all the same. This is precisely how Solomon describes things. So we might not amass all that Solomon did, but we certainly get a lot of it. And eventually we find ourselves singing that John Mayer song, which the lyrics will be on the screen for you. I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I searched for joy. I bought it all. Something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing and I don't know what it is. What's the outcome of his experiment? Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Right? He says, then I considered. It literally means I looked it in the eye. I looked it in the eye. And in the end, it was all like a breath of air. It was all like trying to catch the wind in my hands. I mean, think about how many Ecclesiastes key words uh, that I wrote about in an update a few, a few weeks ago. How many of those keywords are packed into this verse, right? Toil, vanity, striving after wind, nothing gained under the sun. And he tipped his hand that this is where he was going to go in verse 1, right? We already saw that. So what's the result of his great experiment? It's disillusionment. And so let's just be honest. We wouldn't report things the way that he did, though. Right? We, we wouldn't say, well, it was, we would say maybe like, well, it wasn't all bad, Right? I mean, this is like a connoisseur's paradise. People would revere somebody like this, and this would have been a pleasurable life. I mean, and, and he did. We got to admit, he did get enjoyment out of it. He says in verse 10, my heart found pleasure, but it was, it was kind of that cotton candy pleasure, if I could say it that way. You know cotton candy, right? Who doesn't like cotton candy? When people deny they don't like cotton candy, I'm suspicious of them, right? Everybody loves cotton candy, but what is cotton candy? It's really just sugar and air, isn't it? Right? It's just sugar and air. In, in a real sense, it's being famished and hungry, longing for a big feast, a big dinner, and then being served cotton candy. It might taste good, but it's going to leave you wanting, right? It might look like a lot, but it's really not much there. And so his end result of his experiment, he says, in a sense, it's cotton candy for the soul. That's what it is. So what does he do? He says, well, I turned I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly in verses 12 through 23, right? We see this. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done before. That's important to note here, just rather out of the gate, that when he says, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, it's not like he's, he's trying to live a wise life for a weekend or a wise life for a month. He is going to become a man of intellect, a man of true wisdom. Uh, he's going to become a man of reason, right? As, as more of a lifetime sort of statement here. Uh, and he's going to be successful at it. And then look what it says in verse 12, right? We just read it. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has been done before. This has actually been a really tricky verse for many people who've read this. But all he means is that with all of his power, all of his ability, all of his authority, he can access everything, So no matter who you are, whoever comes after him is not going to be better, right? You're not going to have a different 
result, I guess, in living wisely. And so what does he discover since we can trust him? Right? Verses 13 through 14, what does it say? Then I saw that there is more, there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he's saying clearly wisdom has its advantages over foolishness. It's, it's a better way to live, and he's right. Okay? Wisdom does have advantages over living without sense. People who, who don't make good choices or don't live and think, what would be the consequences from this action? We would know that doesn't lead you to a better life, right? I mean, this is actually, pretty, this is actually a, a moral uh, angle language that we're being uh, given here. This is uh, tied to that language of madness and folly, which is moral language. So he's, he's suggesting that there is a logical difference in life quality between someone who keeps God's commands, right? Like loving other people or um, telling the truth or not stealing, right? That versus someone who spends their life making their own rules and breaking everybody else's rules, right? Wisdom makes sense. It does. But in terms of satisfying my soul, in terms of lasting gain, it's just not going to deliver, right? What use is it? The thing that makes me face that is the ultimate futility of wisdom. Yes, it's going to help you in the short term, but look in the middle of verse 14 down through 16. What does it say? And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So, so why is this not going to satisfy your soul? Verse 16 tells you, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And we have, we got to like tune in here. Let's just like sit to the edge of our seat a little bit more and, and listen closely, okay? There is a very important theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it begins right here. It's the inevitability of death. And this is telling us that whatever you and I are looking to for deep soul satisfaction, better be able to deal with that. It better be able to deal with that. It better be able to stand up to death. And living wisely cannot stand up to death. So what use is it? It's good in the short term, but verse 15 says, what happens to the fool happens to me. And verse 16 concludes, how the wise dies just like the fool. See, death shows no partiality. It strikes the wise and the foolish. It comes to the rich and the poor, the sick and the healthy, the orthodox and the heretic. Right? And all of our efforts to become great in the meantime, whether it's through our work, our wealth, or our wisdom, it's like we're swimming in the ocean and we keep coming up at these moments to get another breath of air before we go back down and keep swimming. Right? We have to keep on with that cycle just for those nice moments of, of fresh air. This is the outcome of the living wise experiment. So, so what do we do when wealth and wisdom disappoint us? Where have these two things, these two experiments gotten the preacher? What does he say in verse 17? So I hated life. Man. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and a striving after the wind. 
I don't know what you're going through, but maybe you would say, man, I get that. I hate life. Or I hate things about my life, something about my life. Whatever it is, guys, as long as we look at things from this vantage point of life under the sun, as if this is all there is, if we look at things from this vantage point, right, then we will hate things about our life or life itself. That's the result. But then look at where he goes in verses 18 and following. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So he's kind of ranting now, isn't he? Right? He's already bitter. He's told us he hates life, as if the realization that none of his hard work, none of his great knowledge could stop the arrival of death. It was, and that wasn't enough. The idea that someone might come along after him and completely undo all of his hard, wise, lifelong work, right? It, it's going to be unbearable. He hated life. He despaired over it all. And sadly, it's not ironic um, that King Solomon experienced the height of Israel's kingdom. He experienced the glory days of Israel, and then his son, Rehoboam, witnessed its irreparable fracturing and division right after him. So, in a sense, what he's talking about here actually was experienced, and the same thing happens today. You don't have to be a king to resonate with what he's saying. His overall conclusion is right here in verses 23 to 23. What does he say? What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You could sum it up by going back to verse 20. How's he feeling? I gave up my heart to despair. Right? This is life in the valley. Life feels like running on a treadmill, I've said before like lots of work and silent desperation, okay? If you run on a treadmill like I do, it's a lot of silent desperation, okay? But lots of work, silent desperation, and when you hit stop and you pause and reflect, you're at at the same spot you started from, right? The days are full of sorrow, and we're surrounded with reminders that we live in a broken and fallen world, right? Right? Because everything that we put our effort into, whether it's our work, our relationships, our own health, our family, our religion, whether it's trying to hang a curtain rod or grill a steak so that it's juicy but not bloody but not dried out, right? Uh, Whether it's finding the perfect birthday gift for somebody or trying to get the kids to bed on time, right? It's just that puff of smoke, right? It's, It's trying to catch wind in your hands, Right? Work itself, he says here, is a vexation. And many times we might experience its joys, but we also experience its unpleasantness, its painfulness at times when it's boring. And when it's over, we can't even find comfort in a good night's sleep, especially if you're like me and there's a little cat meowing in the next room the whole time, right? Because it wants to play for some reason, okay? Now, why is this, right? Why is this? 
because death is still coming. So what use is it? Guys, see, God notices this about us, and in his compassion, he draws this out. That's what he's doing. Made me consider this should be on the screen for you, Isaiah 55. What does he say? Come, everyone who thirsts, right? Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then here's this compassion question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. In a stronger way, he draws this out in Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, who is who? The fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. These jars, right? These jugs. Broken cisterns that we all know leaky cisterns are going to leak. They can't hold water. Guys, these passages are a mirror reflecting back on Solomon's experiments and on us, actually, because what has happened? Why this epic failure of Solomon? Well, there's one simple reason. Because those things he was looking to for satisfaction are not God. They're not God. They're not the fountain of living water. They're broken cisterns, and this outcome is the same for you and me, too, isn't it? So what's the answer? Well, right here at the end of chapter 2 is one of the most important moments in this book, and he actually begins to give us an answer. What does it say? Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... So the one who doesn't please God, he is given the business of gathering and collecting, sort of that cycle of meaninglessness, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So he gets this conclusion that there's kind of two ways you can live, basically. And so every now and then in Ecclesiastes, this is the good part about Ecclesiastes, um, if you're asking what's the good part, right? The clouds part, and we catch a glimpse of life above the sun, right? And that's what we're seeing here. I think it's tempting to read verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should do, blah, blah, blah. It's tempting to read this as sort of a kind of carpe diem, seize the day mentality that says, since we're all going to die soon anyways, at least let's just have some fun and eat and drink and enjoy what we got. Like you can read it in that fatalistic sort of way, there's nothing better, so you should just enjoy what you can while you can. And many people live that way. Or some people might read this as if he's suggesting um, that we should just find joy in the little things in life. Let's just find joy in the little things and take our mind off those bigger questions and frustrations. So this is what I got. I'm just going to enjoy this and be content with this little thing. And uh, just maybe that'll, you know, I just won't, I can't answer those questions. I can't fix those. So I'm just going to enjoy this little thing, right? But is that what he's saying? Is that it? Is that what verse 24 is telling you? Not at all. He's actually helping us along the path of true wisdom. The way that God actually calls us and lays out for us how we live a meaningful life. See, Solomon is talking about real, lasting joy. A joy that's found right smack dab in the puff of air like life, right under the sun. A joy that lifts our hearts and lightens our step. 
right? a joy that comes from God himself. Because what does it say? This also I saw is from the hand of God. It's, it's being given to you. You're, you're, you're receiving it from his hand, right? For apart from him, who can eat and drink and have enjoyment? Guys, here it is. Look at it. Verses 1 through 23, search all you can. God is nowhere to be found. And that's exactly what Solomon's trying to show you. Right? But then you get to these verses and God shows up in every single line. I count five times. But more importantly, God's not only just in the picture as if we're aware of his presence. No, he's in his rightful place. When you experience these things that are coming from his hand, right, you can actually begin to enjoy them. This is one of the many things that I love about being a Christian because all of these things that we've walked through, that everyone's trying to enjoy and, and find that deep satisfaction in, but they just can't, we can enjoy. We can actually enjoy them. We, we can interact with these things, and it won't lead us to despair or bitterness. Why? Because we aren't trying to make them do what they aren't capable of doing, right? Which is what? Satisfying our soul, Right? We receive them from the hand of God for what they are, right? Simple gifts from God. So right here, Ecclesiastes shows us something other than futility. It shows us a life of contentment, a life of purpose, and a life of joy. It's from the hand of God. God is pictured as who here? A generous giver, right? Who gives what? Joy. God is presented here to you as a God who gives joy, and he is generous. Right? Everything that we have, you guys, is a gift. Right? It's a gift from God. Right? We don't deserve any of it. Right? There may not be satisfying gain in the things that we can consume and build and own and achieve in this life in and of themselves, but there is true gain found in life when God's in his rightful place. That's why I want us to consider here that should be on the screen for you. When Paul writes to Timothy about this idea, you would imagine he's reading Ecclesiastes because what does he say? Of course, there is great gain, right? Oh, there is great gain in something. What is it? In godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. That sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich, right? Those who want to live in verses 1 through 11, divorced from God, right? You're going to fall into temptation. You're going to be trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains, Right? This is living truly wise if you listen to what Paul's saying, to, to avoid this pitfall. So what's the difference between the sinner and the pleaser in these verses? Because that's the two ways, right? How do you understand what Paul is talking about? How do you get there? How do you become pleasing to God? Because I read this in and of myself, and I read, but to the sinner, that's the person who's missed the mark, who lives and seeks out all these things apart from God, and I go, well, man, that is me, right? So how do you become pleasing to God? To know that you're pleasing to God, to know that that's where you're living, 
Right? How do you know that? Well, you don't please God simply by doing stuff, even religious stuff. No, that just leaves you empty. You, you become pleasing to God or put into a right relationship with God through Jesus, right? Through the one who is, he's truly pleased with, right? See, God's provision, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus, that's the way the Bible shows us we become pleasing to God. That's why Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Right? And that's not just talking about a generic kind of faith in God as if you're aware that He exists or something like that. No, that's faith in the one who is God and who has come for you. Right? Faith, that, that's how you become pleasing to God. That's how it happens. Because God isn't impressed with your wisdom, and He's not impressed with your stuff, and none of those things are going to solve death, which is what my sin has created. And so, guys, we have faith now offered to us in the one, Jesus, who came. And as he came up out of the waters of the Jordan River when he was baptized, we hear God the Father say over him, this is my son with whom I am, what? Well pleased. Right? The one who was pleased, uh, God was pleased with. Right? The only one who ever enjoyed the gifts of God, and he always did so, uh, never apart from the hand of God, from the recognition that it's from who, who's coming from, the only one who truly pleased the Father, right? The only one who'd never missed the mark. That's why when the pleased one, uh, the one who God was pleased with, came and stood up at a feast, right? A feast where no one's thirsty, everyone's indulging, right? What does he say? If anyone thirsts, well, nobody thirsts at a feast. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, Right? He's the one who looked at a crowd that was just miraculously fed by him and said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. And then the gospel message we are told by Paul is that Jesus is the one who was rich, right? wealthier than a million Solomons combined. But he became poor, not because he was foolish and wasted it, but because he was generous, became poor so that we who were poor might become truly rich with a richness in God's eyes. Guys, he's the one who set his face on the work that he was sent to do, and he never failed in that work, and he never had to worry about what the next generation would do with his work after he left because the work that he was sent to do was a work that only he could do, right? He, and he finished it. Hebrews 12 tells you, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? He's the founder. He built it, right? He, he perfected it and finished it, right? He, that's what he did. And it says what? Who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is he seated? Well, because he finished his work and it was not in vain, Right? Do you see this? Do you believe this? That Jesus pleased the Father and he accomplished his work by a cross standing up and him dying on it, by a tomb being emptied because he was raised and by death itself dying because it had been defeated by him. This is why, only this is why, you can come to Jesus in faith and he will satisfy you because it answers the question that nothing else can answer. It satisfies the thing that nothing can endure. 
It's in that relationship that you'll finally find that this is it. Right? This is what I was made for. This is the ocean that I was meant to swim in. Now, everything else then falls into its proper place, and you can enjoy the things God gives for what they are, their gifts, because your satisfaction is in Christ, that, that He's the border of the puzzle that the rest of the pieces fit in their proper place, which is why we are told whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Why? Because I want to glory in God. My satisfaction is truly found in Him, so I can eat, I can drink, but I do it for His glory. Guys, false gods are very cruel, and they will destroy you. If you look for your soul satisfaction there, they will tear you up. There are two ways to live, though. There's silent desperation, or there's joyous contentment. You could say with the preacher in verse 23, my heart does not find rest. Or you can say with the psalmist, my soul finds rest in God alone. There's two ways. Two ways. For apart from Him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Father, this morning as we come to this passage, Lord, I pray that you would really just reveal and expose the things in our lives that we are looking to uh, for that ultimate deep soul satisfaction. And would you do a work in our hearts, God, that only you could do? God, would you bring us to the place where we, f- where we place our faith in Jesus um, again today in this moment, Lord, where we um, find our deep soul satisfaction in him? Father, we, we worship you and we're so thankful, Lord, that um, even in our foolishness and in our rebellion, God, you looked upon us with compassion and love, and you drew out um, these questions, Lord. You, you exposed this in us, but then you didn't do so in just a cruel way. You did so in a gracious way in providing us um, the answer in your son, Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, for, um, for any and all who are hearing today, God, if they do not know you, that they would come to faith, the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They would find their satisfaction in him today that they place their faith in you. And as believers, Lord, anybody who's a follower of you, I pray that you would uh, just continue to restore us, Lord, uh, that we might find our footing and our delight in you as we were made for. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.